Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me to our text this day, which comes from 1 Thessalonians. We'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. So 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Thus far is the ring of God's word. Well, today, brothers and sisters, we're going to just jump right back in to where we last left off as last Sunday was part one of this two-part series in verses 13 to 18 in the return of Christ. And recall from last week, we learned that the saints in Thessalonica had an improper understanding about the events that were to take place upon our Lord's second advent. Paul says these saints were uninformed. And so his aim in writing this section of the letter is to complete that lack of understanding, to to give them understanding of what they have been missing. But not only is he writing to them so that they might have a greater understanding, but that having that greater understanding might cause them to do something. It might cause a reaction within this Christian community in Thessalonica. Because for a while these saints have been struggling. And they've been struggling with the question of what happens to saints who have died prior to the return of Christ? Do they miss out? Is it only those who are living when Christ returns who will be caught up in the air with our Lord? And Paul's answer to this is no. No. Paul instructs the saints actually that all believers, both living and dead, will go to meet the Lord upon His return. And the reason that Paul thought that this was important enough to tell the saints is because he's seen that they were grieving like the unbelieving world. They were grieving at the loss of the saints, just like the unbelieving world would. And Paul says to them, you're not to grieve like the unbelieving world does. They have no hope. They're hopeless. But you as believers have a hope. And your hope as believers is found in Christ, if you are His. And because then, Paul says that Christ died and rose again, being those first fruits of all who have fallen asleep, He has guaranteed the resurrection of all those who have fallen asleep prior to His return. In fact, Paul says that all will be raised and those who are in the ground will be raised first. And then those who are living will soon follow them in the air to be with the Lord. And then all the saints will be with Him. There will be no one left in the grave. No one will be left behind. And then body and soul once more will be reunited 
for all of eternity as God had intended from the very beginning at creation. And so that covers then just briefly our, our first point from last week. Okay? And so we're going to go right in then to our second point. And if you recall, our second point from last week was that Paul informs the saints that when Christ returns, it will be a cataclysmic event that all will see, which results in eternal life for believers in Christ. And so let us look once more at verse 16 here, where Paul says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the, the first part of point two that I want us to highlight, right? That when Christ returns, it will be a cataclysmic event. And so here, what do we read in verse 16? There's a, a threefold declaration of our Lord's return. We have a cry of command, we have a voice of an archangel, and we have a trumpet blast. And so let me ask you something. Does this sound like it's going to be quiet? Does this sound like a quiet return? Well, there are some who would have you believe that this is going to be a quiet return. But it will be anything but quiet. So please turn, if you will, in your text to Exodus 19. Turn in Exodus 19 and we can look at what it is, what happens, what occurs when the, when the trumpet blasts. Exodus chapter 19. Looking at verse 16 and following. As the Israelites or in the wilderness at Sinai. And we read this, starting in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it like fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. You see, brothers and sisters, the Israelites, as we read, surely heard the trumpet blast, did they not? For we read, as they heard the trumpet blast, it caused them to tear. Right? The camp trembled in terror. It was something audible. And now not only are we to hear the trumpet blast, we are told, but we're going to hear a cry of command and the voice of an archangel as our Lord descends. And so not only when Christ returns will it be something audible, but it will also be something visible. And think about it. Where else in Scripture do we hear about trumpet blasts? When else are Trumpets played in Scripture. How about before war? Trumpets are blasted before war. We read this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah anguishes over Judah's desolation for turning their back on the Lord. And in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 19, we read this. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. For I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. And I'm sure that was a terrifying sound for all to hear, knowing that it was time to do battle. It was time to fight. It could spell the end of their life. 
But everyone on the field heard the battle, the, 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 the war trumpet sound. They heard the alarm of war. Everyone who was in the wilderness at Sinai heard the trumpet blast. And now the trumpet blast that we read of here that's supposed to sound forth to the ends of the world that's going to cause the dead to rise out of the ground is something that not everyone is supposed to hear? No, everyone will hear it. And you want to know why they will hear it? Because it is the pronouncement of our Lord's coming. It is the pronouncement of our Lord's coming. To do what? To destroy those who warred against Him. Isn't this what we just read in Jeremiah? The trumpet blast is an alarm of war. And our Lord is coming when He returns to make war on those who rejected Him and denied Him. Right? So this is the imagery here in 1 Thessalonians that Paul is giving to us. Yet what else is our Lord coming to do? To judge the world. Both believers and unbelievers alike. And so you better believe that when the conquering King returns, all will know it. Everyone will know it. But where else do we hear about trumpet blasting? Where else? I'm going to ask for you to turn to two other places with me, please. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 51. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Let's hear what Paul has to say about this trumpet blast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed. You see, brothers and sisters, when the trumpet blasts, in a moment we will all be changed. But what else is, do we read about the trumpet? So turn with me to Matthew 24, verse 29. All right. So the trumpet is a sound of war, we read. The trumpet is what sounds for which we are changed in the twinkling of an eye, imperishable. But what else do we read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 about the trumpet? We read, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then he will appear in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven and to the other. See, brothers and sisters, first the first uh, Corinthians 15. Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, they are all describing the same event for us. Right? You see, there's nothing secret about the return of Christ. It will be a spectacle for all. As we read here in Matthew's Gospel, the tribes of the earth, when He comes, are going to mourn. And the elect from all corners of the earth are going to be gathered together. Because our Lord's arrival is going to be a demonstration of His glory and His power and His majesty for all to see. 
And it will be when our Lord returns, we read that all will be caught up to meet Him in the air. To meet Him in the air. Now this is interesting. Because some will have you understand our text this morning in 1 Thessalonians. As Christ not really coming a second time. He kind of just meets us in the air and then He'll, he'll take us back and then there'll be like the seven year tribulation period of time. But is this actually the case? Is this what Paul is describing for us today? And I don't think it is. And it's interesting, actually, this word that's used by Paul to meet the Lord. We who are alive will be in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. You see, in the Hellenistic culture at this time in which Paul is writing, this, this word meeting had significance. And this word meeting was used for when someone who was highly esteemed, like a, a dignitary, would be coming into your town. And you would go to meet him. The citizens of that town would run out to meet him and they would usher him back to where they stay and where his journey ended. That is what it was to, to meet someone. That was the use of this word in the Hellenistic culture. That is what this word conveyed in the Greek. And it is the same word used in our text here today that Paul uses. To go and meet the Lord. And so actually turn with me to Matthew 25 because this isn't the only place in Scripture where we read about meeting the Lord. And I think Matthew 25 will give us even a better picture of the imagery that Paul is using here. So Matthew 25, and we're going to look at the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew 25, in the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You see, brothers and sisters, this word meeting here is used in the exact same way that it was used in the Hellenistic culture. Right? The virgins went out as the bridegroom, as the, as the highly respected person is coming to their town, and the, these virgins ran out to meet him, only to bring him back to sit down to have a feast. This is what is being described for us in our text today. They didn't go out to meet him just for him to turn around and go back to where he came from, did they? No, that's not what they did. They went out to meet him to bring them back to where they were, to bring him back to where his journey ended. And it is the exact same thing described for us in our text this morning. 
The dead will rise. Then all those who are living will rise. And our Lord then will continue his descent with the saints. This is what Paul is telling the saints. And what's going to happen then when the Lord is ushered down by the saints? Right? We'll read, you read later in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. It's the end. It's the consummation of all things. Right? When our Lord returns, you go to eternal punishment or eternal life. Right? This is why I, I, I can't be a premillennial uh, in my eschatology. Because I don't see anywhere for a seven-year tribulation period, nor do I see anywhere for a thousand-year millennium after our Lord descends with the saints. Right? And we can see this from other places also in Scripture of Christ's return that speak of His return. Uh, we can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. You don't have to turn with me there, but, but just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. Paul thanks God for the saints and asks that He would enrich the saints in every way so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the saints are waiting for the revealing of Christ. But now just look at Second Thessalonians. Maybe you may have to flip over a page or just look to the page next to you. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. <clears throat> And this is what Paul says here. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. And what is He going to do? Inflict vengeance on those who do not know God on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What will happen to them? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. You see, brothers and sisters, when the Lord is revealed from Scripture, I mean revealed from heaven, we learn from Scripture, right? two things will happen. The saints who are still here, right? we're going to be that affliction is going to be taken away. And we're going to be perfected and made holy by God. Yet also, at that exact same time, those who are the afflictors will receive their just recompense. They will be judged and sent into eternal condemnation. This is what Paul describes for us. Okay, And we could go through so many more examples of this, but this will suffice. This will suffice to say, this is why I am a millennial. This isn't the only reason, but it's, it's a good reason why. And in fact, with regards to this text, the amillennial position and the postmillennial position are pretty much the same, which is why I haven't brought them up at all. Well, we both come to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13-18 and agree that Christ's return comes after the millennium, not before. Okay? But what's important to gather from our text and what's important to see is that Paul informs the saints that no one is going to miss out when Christ arrives, right? It will be an event for all to see, a cataclysmic event for all to see. And so Paul's writing this to give them also confidence and to assure them that those believing spouses, those believing mothers and fathers and children who have died in infancy, all those who are believers, all those who are God's elect, 
will be raised to be with the Lord when He returns. They won't miss out. And that should be such a great confidence and assurance for us too. All of us who have lost someone. My mother is asleep right now in the ground. But I have assurance from God's Word that when the Lord returns, she's not going to remain there. But her body is going to be raised. Right? And spirit unite. Right? And each and every one of you, I'm sure, have lost someone close to you, a believer. Right? And you too can have that assurance that when the Lord returns, they will be raised. Right? And doesn't that help you? Doesn't that give you encouragement to know that? I know it does for me. And it surely did for these saints here in Thessalonica. And we can know that if you and I, if we were to die today before our Lord's arrival, that we too will not be left in the ground. And when Christ returns, He will raise us too to be with Him in the air. Right? And so what a great promise we have that Paul delivers to the saints. Yet this isn't the only promise that Paul gives to us. Paul says that when we go to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. This is what he says at the end of verse 17. Right? So we will always be with the Lord. And here is part two of point two that I want to highlight. Right? Point, this is part two of point two. The, the result of being caught up for the saints is that we will be with the Lord forever. Right? It's going to be a cataclysmic event for all to see. And the result of this, when our Lord returns, is that we are promised to be with the Lord forever. You see, brothers and sisters, it is this being with the Lord forever. Is the, this is the reason that Paul gives to the saints in order that they would not react like those who have no hope. He says, brothers and sisters, you have the promise of being with the Lord forever. Right? And so Paul's message to the saints is that our end, that the end of those who have died for the end of every believer who has ever lived is being with the Lord forever, for all of eternity, for eternal fellowship with Him, for all time. And this is good news for the believer. This is great news for the believer. In preparation for this morning, I heard someone describe it as this, that when Christ returns for the believer, it will be nothing but pure gospel. That when Christ returns, it is nothing but pure gospel for the believer. And isn't that true? When Christ returns, He is going to return as Savior and as Redeemer. And the saints are going to be perfected and glorified and made perfectly holy. And all sin and corruption and affliction will be removed. And then what will ensue? But everlasting worship of our Creator. Pure gospel. Pure gospel, brothers and sisters. What a wonderful promise we have. Yet this isn't all the news that we have, right? Because although the return of Christ is pure gospel for believers, the return of Christ with respect to the unbeliever, I also heard, is the opposite. Right? The return of Christ for the unbeliever is pure law. When Christ returns, it is pure law. He will come as judge and He will judge them according to His perfect, righteous standard of holiness. And because they have not obeyed His law personally, perfectly, and perpetually, and because they have sought to establish their own righteousness in favor of the righteousness of Christ, the verdict 
as they stand before the judgment seat is guilty. It is guilty for the unbeliever. And the result is eternal damnation. And yet, brothers and sisters, this isn't anything that we should hope for. This isn't anything that we should find delight in or joy in. And this is why it's important for us as a church to continue to proclaim indiscriminately the gospel to all people. This is why it's important for each and every one of you who profess to be Christians to be able to give a defense for the hope that is within you that you might be able to warn spouse, neighbor, child, co-worker, anyone about the impending judgment that awaits those who reject our Lord and Savior. Right? Our desire should be that all people would come to saving knowledge in Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope here point two was made clear for us that we, we understand that Paul informs the saints of the resurrection of the dead in order to give them understanding, which will lead to a change in behavior. It's going to lead to a change in how they react to believers when they die. They're not going to act like they don't have any hope. And so Paul's message is this, don't worry. No one will miss out. In fact, the, the cry of the command of our Lord will be what raises these saints from the grave. Right? And all who are raised, both living and dead, will be with the Lord forever. No one's going to miss out on any aspect of our Lord's return. And so having established our second point, let us then turn to our third and final point of this morning. And that last point is this, that Paul informs the saints of Christ's return so that it would serve as an encouragement to them and lead them into holy living. Paul's conclusion here in verse 18 tells us this very thing, actually. In verse 18, he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Right? Paul writes the words so that they would no longer be uninformed, so that they would no longer grieve as those who have no hope. And then in using these words, in knowing this, to encourage one another. Right? Encouraging the saints in the Scripture, is something that's highly valued. It's something that's highly esteemed. It's this encouragement amongst the saints that gives to us comfort. We are comforted when we are encouraged by one another. Yet it's also important to understand why we feel comforted when we are encouraged. And so let me give you an example of what I mean to show you. So we've all probably had something happen in our life that was bad or that, that didn't go our way. And what usually does someone say to us? They say, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be okay. Right? Everything will be all right. Everything will be just fine. Maybe you played sports growing up and your team was just awfully bad. And you just lost game after game after game. And your parents would say to you, oh, don't worry. It's, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And you thought to yourself, unless they bring in a whole new team who can actually play basketball, we're never going to get any better. Or maybe it was something more serious. Perhaps you lost your job. And a, a dear friend of yours says, hey, don't worry, you're going to bounce right back. You're going to get right back on your feet. And you're thinking to him, well, easy for him to say, he has a job, but I lost my job. And I have bills coming up that are due. And I have children whom I need to feed. Right? And so he's saying something nice to me, but he doesn't know that it's true. Right? We know that when people say those things to us, whether it's our parents or our friend, they're just trying to be a good parent and a good friend, trying to lift our spirits up. But we can't really rely on their reassurance, can we? 
Because they don't really know that everything is going to be better. They, our parents don't really know that our team is going to get better. That friend doesn't really know that we're going to get right back on our feet, do they? They don't. You see, but this is not the type of encouragement that we receive as saints, is it? No, it's not. And that's because the words that we are to encourage one another with are the very sure words of Scripture. And these are not the words of mere men, but men who wrote, who were moved by the Spirit's inspiration. Right? These are God-written words, and so they are infallible, and they are true, and we can be sure as saints that everything that is promised to us will come to pass. This is why we can be encouraged in the midst of trial and uncertainty and even death because we have God's comforting words and He knows everything from beginning to end. And this is why Paul specifically tells the saints, encourage one another with these words. It is these words, the words Paul has given to them. Not your own words. Not some nice assurance you try to give somebody else but with the words of Scripture, the assurance that God has given us. I'm sure so many of us have, perhaps if we've lost someone and, and we've had an unbelieving family member or friend who've come up to us and, and, has, and have told us, right? Everything's going to be all right. You'll, you'll see them again. Right? But in fact, they don't know that. The unbeliever does not know that. They do not have the promise nor the assurance. But we as believers have the assurance. Because we know it is based on the authority of God that we who believe can know for certain that we will see all those who are risen from the dead. For all those who are in the grave will be risen with those who are living and we will all be together once again with the Lord. And there is nothing more sure to us than the Word of God. This is why we are comforted when we encourage one another. Because we are comforting one another with the very words of God. And so, brothers and sisters, let us learn likewise as we gather together as saints to encourage one another with the words of Scripture. Right? This, our speech should be filled with the words of Scripture. But you know what else that also means, brothers and sisters? That we are also to encourage one another with our singing of words as well. Not with all forms of our speech as we gather. This is why it's important when we come that we sing together. And that we sing loudly together. It's okay. There's no uh, uh, Frank Sinatra or Patti LaBelle here. That's fine. Right? I apologize for my singing ahead of time. I know that it's treacherous. But still, we are to sing loudly. Right? Not, not screaming, but not whispering either. But why is that? It is because we are encouraging one another as we sing with the words of God. This is the very thing Paul told us in Colossians. Remember when we went through Colossians? We are to teach and to admonish one another through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, right? This is what we're told. And so no matter what it is we do, whether it's in our singing giving comfort or in our speech giving comfort, we must know that the power and the comfort and the assurance comes from the Word of God, not from us. And so in encouraging one another with these words, though Paul hopes that something changes, right? He hopes that something results from that. Paul trusted that this knowledge was going to lead to a change in their behavior, right? That it would lead to a life of godliness. Because knowledge 
doesn't mean much if it doesn't lead to anything, right? It's just all head knowledge. What, what does it matter? Right? This is the reason that we, our kids are schooled. It's not so we can fill their heads with tons of knowledge, but it's we give them knowledge so then they can go out in life and do something with it. Right? Not waste it away. And so Paul's desire for us is no different. The Thessalonians, having been recipients of this new knowledge of Christ and of His return, this knowledge was now to affect their lives and their manner of living. It was to cause their change in the reaction to death. It was to cause them to shift their focus when someone died instead of overwhelming grief to overwhelming joy, knowing that they were to be with the Lord when He returned. Right? It was to turn crippling despair into joy and delight, knowing that we will be with the Lord forever when He returns. And yet, this is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, when Peter tells us, make your calling and election sure. Right? Because we're talking about eternal things, forever things. Right? It's so important to make sure your calling and election is sure. It's why it's so important that Paul says, to make sure that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, right? and increasing the knowledge of God. And so as we sit here today, can we say that this describes us? Does this describe us? Is our hope firmly fixed on Christ? As we sit here today, can we say that we are waiting gladly in anticipation for Christ's return? If you're a believer, you should. This should be your heart's greatest desire for our Lord to return. And what a glorious sight it will be for us when that occurs. But for the unbeliever, no wonder why they don't want Him to return. Because it's going to be a terrible sight for them. They're going to tremble, tremble in fear. And so let us who confess Christ continue to walk in the faith consistently having confidence not in ourselves, but in the one who saved us, that he who began that good work in us is going to bring it to completion. Right? But we aren't to be passive in this life. We are to be active, right? pursuing holiness, pursuing godliness as we have been called. And so in conclusion, I hope, brothers and sisters, we have come to better understand this highly debated text here in verses 13 to 18. I hope that we see that Paul's purpose in writing was to inform the saints, to give them right understanding of what is going to entail when our Lord returns. And then we are told that it entails the fact that we have hope in the one who has already risen. And because he suffered and died and rose again, we too have assurance that we will rise to be with him. And at that time, believer and unbeliever alike will be judged. And there will either be a judgment unto eternal life or eternal death. And so for us, brothers and sisters, if we have been granted eternal life, it means that we will be with the Lord forever. And Christ's return is the consummation of all things. This is what we learn that Paul teaches. This is what we learn that Matthew teaches, that Peter teaches, that Christ has taught, and that which the Spirit teaches as well through the inspiration of His Word. And so, brothers and sisters, let us hope with the saints and let us remain watchful for the coming of Christ when the last trumpet blasts. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your word as assurance and as an encouragement to us. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word to uh, give us greater wisdom and understanding so that we may live in a manner worthy of our calling. Father, we ask that you would grant to your people today a greater desire for your return, that we would be watchful and waiting in anticipation, uh, looking forward to the day in which you return and we hear the trumpet blast once more. And so, Father, we come before you this morning and we ask all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.